If you have your Bibles, please turn to John chapter 15. We'll be looking at verses 18 through 27 this morning. June 6, 1944. Many of you will know what happened on that date without any further explanation. Now, that was the day that the Allied forces invaded the beaches in Normandy, France. Uh, it was a move that decisively turned the tides of World War II. And, and one of the soldiers that stormed the beach that day was a man named Leonard Crow, And he was my great uncle. And he actually survived the war and he survived to live that, that day and he survived the war and he lived a long life and I was able to know him as a kid. Uh, he never talked to us kids though about the war. He was a huge jokester and I think he would uh, rather just play around with us and have a good time. But when my grandpa or another relative would tell me the stories they heard Uncle Leonard tell, I remember just sitting there starry-eyed with my jaw on the floor about what happened on that day. I mean, the Allied forces, they were faced with what seemed like an impossible task. They knew that they were facing, uh, they're heading straight into the greatest of opposition, but they charged in anyway because they knew how important their mission was. Now, as Christians, while we don't fight our battle with tanks and planes, we, we do fight a battle nonetheless. And like the soldiers on D-Day, in our text for this morning, Jesus tells us, and he promised us that we can expect to encounter the greatest of opposition when we set out to accomplish our mission. Now, our mission, as we know, is to make disciples of all nations. And the first step of that mission, the first step of making disciples is bearing witness for Jesus. And this morning, what we're talking about is the opposition that we can expect to face when we set out to bear witness for Jesus and what we can do to overcome that opposition and speak up anyways. Well, today's sermon is actually the fourth sermon in a series titled Everyday Disciple Making that we've been working through on Wednesday nights. If you've not been able to catch those sermons, then no need to worry, I will catch you up. Uh, the title, Everyday Disciple Making, is all about the idea that Jesus did not envision his followers to just be a bunch of people who gather once or twice a week for religious services. No, he, he intends that his followers live every day on mission as disciples who make disciples every single day. And the way that the COVID pandemic has turned our world upside down and thrown all off our rhythms has shown us that maybe, just maybe, we've, we've missed the mark a little bit. You remember back to that Sunday in March, the first time we found ourselves in our homes watching church on a TV or a computer screen and, and Brandon preaching to a camera in an empty room. And now in October, here we find ourselves again. For most of us, as long as we can remember, our whole Christian lives have revolved around going to church services and activities on a weekly or, or biweekly basis. And every Sunday, you, know, you knew what to expect. Get up, go to Sunday school, go to worship, go eat Mexican food, then fall asleep during the NASCAR race. And that's what you do on Sundays. 
But when that rhythm of going to church that we're used to gets thrown off, we're left wondering, how do I live as a Christian? What does it mean to live like a Christian if I can't go to church the way I've always done? Now, to be clear, you know, attending corporate worship gatherings is an absolutely essential part of the Christian life. That's what the Bible uh, teaches. And, and frankly, there's really no, no way around that. But the fact that we feel lost as Christians, that we don't know how to be Christians when we can't go to church like we always have, is, is kind of like a, a check engine light that we need to pay attention to. The question is, do we really know how to be Christians, to really know how to be disciples who make disciples every day, or do we just know how to be people who go to church every Sunday or so? If our whole way of doing church was to be disrupted as it has, or even if it was to be disrupted in a bigger way, in some unforeseeable way in, in the future, uh, would you know how to follow Jesus? How to disciple your kids? How to worship Jesus? How to, how to share life with other Christians? How to reach your neighbors? Would we know how to do that? It's the first thing we need to do, we need to get back to square one. We need to have a clear definition in our minds of what it means to be a disciple. And that's what we looked at back in the first week of this series where we studied the Great Commission from Matthew 28 where Jesus says this. He says, all authority in, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And based on that passage, Jesus tells us that to be a disciple of Jesus is to obey the commands of Jesus. That's, that's the definition. That is the very essence of what it means to be a disciple. It's all about obeying the commands of Jesus. So where do we find those commands? And obviously, we find those commands in the Gospels where they record Jesus' teachings but in a bigger sense, Jesus' commands include the, the New Testament and ultimately the whole Bible. Well, of course, we know that, that not all the Old Testament commands uh, apply directly to Christians today. So when you read Deuteronomy 22.8, you're not in violations of, of Jesus' commands if you don't have a parapet around the roof of your house. And so we have to use sound interpretive principles, of course, rightly interpreting, so we don't misinterpret those commands, especially in the Old Testament. But being a disciple of Jesus is, is ultimately a matter of obeying Jesus by obeying the commands of the Bible. So, so where do you start? I mean, are there certain commands that take priority over others? Is there a way to organize those commands? Or do we just need to keep a, a list of those commands in our pocket and, and just check them off, kind of like a grocery list, making sure we don't forget anything? Well, in John 15, Jesus gives us the top three priorities of the Christian life. A couple weeks ago, we looked at priority one, which Jesus covers in verses one through 11. 
And in those verses, Jesus gives the command, abide in me. That's priority one. In other words, he is saying, stay vitally connected to me because your relationship to me is like a vine and its branches. And just like if a branch is cut off from the vine, it it withers and dies. In the same way, if you're disconnected from me, you can't do anything. And this command, that priority one, lines up with the greatest commandment in Matthew 22, where Jesus says, above all else, love the Lord your God with with all of your being. That's what abiding in Jesus is all about. And then this past Wednesday night, we looked at priority two, which Jesus covers in verses 12 through 17, where he commands us to love one another. He's saying that if we are abiding in him, if we are vitally connected to him, the natural result will be that we love each other because to know Jesus is to know God. And 1 John tells us that God is love. And this priority, this second priority lines up with the second greatest commandment from Matthew 22, love your neighbor as yourself. And then this morning, we are looking at priority three, which Jesus tells us, starting in verse 18. If you would read with me, verse 18, he says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world. But I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning." So based on this passage, what we just read, priority three of the disciples' life is to bear witness for Jesus. Now, the way that these three priorities work together is is really important because I believe that Jesus was intentional in the order of teaching that he gives there in John 15. And so if you've missed the past, uh, past couple messages in this series, you might be wondering what I'm doing with this dinnerware uh, up here. Well, I'm not giving a cooking lesson, nor am I doing foot washing because there's a total of four people with us here. And then number two, I'm sure that would violate all kinds of social distancing rules if we did that. Now, the dinnerware is simply an object lesson to show how these three priorities work together. So priority one is represented by this cup. And then priority two is represented by this smaller plate. And then priority three is represented by the bigger plate. And then Jesus is represented by this pitcher of water. And so we'll try not to make a mess here this morning. 
But as you abide in Jesus, you're taking care of priority one. It's as if you're keeping your cup under the pitcher. You're staying in the word of God. You're praying. You're staying connected to Jesus. And then as Jesus fills you life, fills your life with his presence and with his love and with his joy, as you step into the next level, you step into life together with other Christians, your communion with Jesus is extended to them. And it's as if his love and his presence overflows. And his love makes us lay down our lives for one another as it overflows into the next level. And then as we continue to personally abide in Jesus, and as we corporately abide in Jesus together and love one another, we further extend our, our communion. And this second level overflows into the third as we step out into the world to bear witness for Jesus. And the order matters. Now, I'll spare the mess when I've taught this passage before in smaller settings. I've just made the mess and it's been okay. But you can imagine what would happen if I tried to put the plates on top of the cup. If we don't personally abide in Jesus, then we have nothing to bring to the church. And if as the church, we're not loving one another, then we have nothing to bring into the world. Why? Because apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. And when, not if, but when we face the kind of opposition that Jesus promises to us in John 15, if we're not vitally connected to him and his power, we will keep our mouths shut when it comes time to open our mouths to bear witness about him, because neither you nor I have what it takes. We don't have what it takes in and of ourselves to be faithful witnesses for Jesus. But there is really good news in this passage. He gives us a promise in the last two verses of John 15. You can sum up like this. If we abide in Jesus, then we will bear witness for Jesus, even against the greatest of opposition. And just follow the logic of this passage from verses 18 through 25. I mean, Jesus pulls no punches. He doesn't sugarcoat this at all when he says what's going to happen. He says, they're going to hate you. And then if you read on in chapter 16, I mean, he gets, he goes on a little more about the kind of things that we can expect. And that's, and hate there, hate is a strong word. I mean, to my five-year-old, hate is a bad word. Uh, He told one of our uh, admins at the church that, oh, my daddy says bad words. And I was thinking, what in the world have I said? And so after that, I apologized. Like, I don't know what's going on. After that, I asked Jack and, and he said, I'd heard you talking about hating English peas. And, uh, and I, I do hate English peas. I think they're a disgusting vegetable. Uh, but Jack was like, that's a bad word. My daddy says it. Uh, nonetheless, nonetheless, Jesus uses that strong word. But after building the case for how bad the opposition is going to be in, in verses 18 to 25, in verses 26 and 27, it says, if he says, in spite of all that, in spite of everything that's going to come against you, still you will be my witnesses. And it's not because you're such awesome people who are so gifted and you got the gift of all these different things, but it's because I'm going to fill you with my Holy Spirit and, and he will make you bear witness for me, no matter the opposition. 
So what does it mean to bear witness for Jesus? Well, simply put, it's telling people about Jesus. It's sharing the gospel. But here is a, just to guide us this morning, here's a more technical definition for bearing witness that we'll use today. To bear witness for Jesus is to tell the truth about who he is, what he has said, and what he has done. Now, you may have heard this saying, uh, it's a pretty popular saying, but it goes like this, preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. Well, that quote has been popular, popularly attributed to Francis of Assisi, who uh, lived in the 1200s, but there's really no evidence that he actually said that. And if I were him, I'd be mad at people who are saying that I said that because that saying is total bogus. Yes, our lives absolutely as Christians should be lived on a higher moral standard because the, the gospel changes our lives and makes us more Christ-like. But your moral life and my moral life won't save anybody from their sins or from an eternity in hell. Yes, your moral life will support the truth of the gospel message you share in the same way just as your immoral life will contradict the gospel message you try to share. But to actually share the gospel, you have to use words. By definition, the gospel is, is the truth about who Jesus is, about what he has said, what he has done. And I don't care how expressive your, your facial muscles are, no amount of, of nonverbal communication can tell somebody that Jesus died on, their, on the cross for their sins. You have to open your mouth and clearly communicate the content of the gospel message. And when, when we open our mouths about the truth of Jesus at that moment, that's the point when we can expect to receive opposition. Because when we share the gospel, we are making a truth statement. And that truth statement runs directly against what most people in the world believe. Nobody, nobody likes an awkward situation. Like when you're in the drive-thru ordering and you say, thank you, sir. And then you pull around to the window and to find out that it was not a sir that took your order. I mean, there's, there's no escaping that awkward situation. You just have to you lower your head and keep going and just, there's no recovering from that one. And when you open your mouth for Jesus, you know that you're risking an awkward situation especially if that person disagrees with you. And in some situations, you might not just find awkwardness, you might find animosity where people get angry with you. And then in some contexts, and especially in some countries in the world, you might even get physically assaulted or killed because you open your mouth for Jesus. But whether you're facing awkwardness, animosity, or, or assault, Jesus remains firm with his command, be my witnesses. Even still, be my witnesses. And so in this passage, Jesus breaks down four reasons why we can expect opposition. And then he also gives us one big reason of why we can overcome opposition when we bear witness for his sake. So first, we can expect opposition because we belong to Jesus. Now, verse 18, we'll read again. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. 
but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Well, I was in Publix earlier this week with a Georgia Bulldogs shirt on. And when I'm checking out, I hear somebody shout, go dogs!" And that's always such a pleasant surprise uh, to find in North Carolina. Normally it's powder blue or dark blue. And and so anybody who recognizes uh, Georgia Bulldogs and says that, it's always a welcome surprise. But a couple years ago, uh, we went to a Georgia Tech versus Chapel Hill game over in Raleigh. My father-in-law is a huge, huge Tech fan. And so we decided to take them to the game. And I literally didn't have a dog in the fight. But you'd better believe that I proudly wore my Georgia Bulldogs gear to that game. And so I was walking to the concession stand one time when I heard somebody shouting the most hateful speech you've ever heard. And I realized it was directed toward me. So I looked up to the seats above me and there was a a raging tech fan with her eyes uh, about to pop out of her head, screaming, screaming, you can't wear that here. Get out of here. Go home. And and so, you know what I did? I just smiled and waved and that didn't help things at all. I had never met that person in my life. She didn't know me from Adam, yet I was receiving all of her hatred because I had identified myself as belonging to a certain group. I was not one of, of their own. So in the same way, once you identify yourself as belonging to part of Jesus' group, you can expect to receive the hatred that people have for him. This gets tricky, though, because a lot of people in the world who are not Christians, they like Jesus, or at least they think they like him. During my my sophomore year of college, I took a class called Intro to World Religions, and it was a great opportunity. Obviously, the class was not taught from a Christian perspective, but it was still a good experience because we had the opportunity to visit visit worship centers from different religions. one time we, one of those times we visited a Hindu temple where the, the Swami had hung pictures of various religious teachers. You had Buddha and Confucius and Muhammad, and right there beside them all was, was a picture of Jesus. And now the, the Swami, he meant well, and I think he was trying to be sincere with that action, I'm sure. But I thought to myself as I saw this, like, you, you really don't know Jesus if you have him up there with those other guys, I mean, based on what Jesus taught about himself, based on what he did, he would not allow for himself to be up on a wall as an equal religious teacher with those other guys. And so when we, we step out into the world to be Jesus' witnesses, we, when we sit down with our non-Christian neighbors and coworkers and family members, I mean, they, they, have, they may have an idea of who Jesus is. They may like Jesus. And when you say, I'm a follower of Jesus, they may say, that's great. I love what he teaches. I mean, what he teaches about loving your enemies and caring for the poor. I mean, what a great religious teacher. What do you do in that situation? Do you just nod your head and, and keep the conversation polite and cordial, or, or do you just do you open your mouth and, and go ahead and bear witness to the full truth about who Jesus is? Because when you do, at that moment, that's when you can probably expect some pushback, some opposition, or at the very least, some confusion and disagreement. 
and before they may have accepted you as, as one of their own because they assumed that your allegiance to Jesus was in line with their ideas of Jesus. But when you correct that false assumption, you might become an outsider. You may become one of those people who believe all that closed-minded nonsense. And we have to, in that moment, we've got to be willing to, to, to step up and with grace and with truth, risk the opposition, risk the confrontation that may come for the sake of sharing the true gospel, even in love for those people who disagree with us. Now, second, the second reason Jesus gives us, he says that we can expect opposition because the world does not know God. Verse 20, Jesus says, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. So just follow the logic of these verses. If they oppose you as a disciple of Jesus, it's because they oppose Jesus. If they oppose Jesus, it's because they don't know God. Therefore, if they oppose you, it's ultimately because they don't know God. Now, there can be a lot of advantages to knowing the right person, especially in the business world. Dropping a certain name can get you a, a job or dropping a name may even get you out of trouble. Uh, and it can be powerful as long as the people to whom you're dropping the name actually know the person whose name you dropped. And, but if they don't know who you're talking about, then dropping that name does you no good and honestly can be a little bit embarrassing. And so as Christians, I mean, our whole lives are shaped by, our God, by, the, by the knowledge of God and what he is like. The way we live is shaped and controlled by what we know about him. His character, his will, his nature all have implications for every aspect of how we live our lives. But when we in, interact with people that don't know God or maybe even don't believe in any God at all, then the way that you live at least is going to be really, really strange to them. Or the way you live may even come across as offensive or hateful or even threatening. Just consider the, the issue of abortion. I mean, as Christian, the issue of abortion is not a complicated issue at all. I mean, it's pretty simple, straightforward. The killing of an unborn child is simply not justifiable. We believe that because we believe in God creates every human being in the image of God. And as a result, every human being, regardless of their age, whether they have only been conceived for a moment, whether they're 99 years old, every human being is, is worthy of the utmost dignity and deserves for their life to be valued and protected. But for someone who does not know that same God that we know, to them, the idea that we would prevent a woman the right to choose seems unfair and unloving to the woman, maybe even hateful or oppressive. See, they have no basis for believing in the dignity of unborn people because they have no knowledge of, of the God who clearly says that unborn people are real people with real rights. As Christians, it's honestly mind-boggling for us how people and politicians can support abortion and even elevate it as an honorable thing. In Romans 1, Paul does a way better job than me of explaining how this works. So I'm just going to read a, several verses and let him do the talking. Romans chapter 1, verse 18, he says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. 
For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, so what he's saying there is even though they can know enough about God by looking at creation to give him honor as a creator. So even though they knew that, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things, the ideas we worship ourselves. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. So in other words, the reason that the unbelieving world can, can justify and support unthinkable things, even atrocities, is because they do not know God. And so when we speak out for the things of God, we can expect to encounter opposition, which leads to the third reason. Third reason we can expect opposition. We can expect opposition because truth is contrary to popular beliefs. So because the majority of the world does not know God, then it follows that the majority of the world is likely to hold beliefs that are contrary to the beliefs that we hold as the people of God. Our beliefs then are going to be unpopular. That's just the way it works. To be popular, something or someone has to be widely approved and accepted by a majority or at least a really large number of the people. So by default, untrue beliefs are going to uh, be the most popular beliefs in the world. I mean, just think about the content options you, you have when you try to find a movie or a TV show. The vast majority of things produced today are simply not fit for Christians to consume. And they run, or at least we have to filter through things because they run directly against the things that we believe and know to be true. I mean, even in kids' movies today, you have to be on guard because so many times they're trying to promote uh, some kind of agenda or platform that runs directly against God's truth about who we are as people and what constitutes right behavior. You know, so you have to be careful, but the reality is saying no to media won't really cause you any real opposition. I mean, your, you know, your TV, they're not going to jump out of the TV screen and, and get you. But, but the point at which you will personally feel the friction of going against the grain of popular belief is the moment when you open your mouth to bear witness about the truth of Jesus. I mean, talking about the things of God, sharing the truth of Jesus, who he is, what he has said, what he has done. I mean, it's like this. If you've ever been fishing at the beach and you've caught a shark and you've ever rubbed shark skin, you know that if you rub from head to tail, it is smooth as silk. But once you go the other way, it's like sandpaper. And that's what it's like to speak the truth that is contrary to popular belief. It's like going against the grain. So we can, we can expect opposition just because we're going in a different direction. You know, but, but it goes deeper, even in popular belief, because the truth of the gospel is also offensive to personal behavior. So the fourth reason is that we can expect opposition because truth is offensive to personal behaviors. Now, this is where bearing witness gets really, really tough 
Because in the, in the sphere of popular belief, some people really, really like to debate and discuss different ideas. And honestly, that kind of dialogue can be kind of fun. I mean, especially if, if both parties can keep it objective and nobody gets personally offended by it. But in order to, to fully bear witness for Jesus, to be faithful to this command from John 15 and to the Great Commission, you can't just stay in the realm of public or popular beliefs because the gospel by nature is a personal message. To faithfully share the gospel, you have to address personal issues and you have to also do it with love because your ultimate goal is for that person with whom you are speaking to be saved from, from their sins. But to, but to be saved, they have to personally repent and believe the gospel. They have to personally do business with God. And in order for, for them to get there, you have to boldly and lovingly share the full gospel in both its public dimensions and also its personal dimensions. And, and so, so what constitutes a gospel conversation. Uh, what do you have to talk about to be able to say, I had a gospel conversation today? Well, a while back, if you remember when we tracked our gospel conversations with the ping pong balls, where we wrote the names of people. I mean, on the one hand, I was super encouraged. I think that really helped people m stay motivated and people stay tracked. I was, I was blown away by the number of gospel conversations people were recording. But I was also surprised uh, whenever we would track a few of those down at what some people qualified as a gospel conversation. Um, talking to your neighbor about why you're voting for a certain politician is not a gospel conversation. It may involve certain aspects of truth, but it doesn't, it doesn't count as a gospel conversation. In the same way, conversation. In the same way, talking to your nephew about worship styles at church. Then, yeah, it's about church, but it really doesn't qualify as, as a gospel conversation conversation. I mean, because you didn't get to the gospel. So if it don't get to the gospel, it's not a gospel conversation. One of the best ways though, that I found to keep myself on track and to also to train people in gospel conversations is with four big truths. But the gospel, you can think about the gospel in this way. The gospel tells the truth about who God is, what sin is, who Jesus is, and what it takes to be saved. So God, sin, Jesus response. Now, talking about God and Jesus, you, you do that in a way that, uh, you can do that in a way that never really gets personal. I mean, those conversations are important because we need to establish the objective external truth of who God is and Jesus and Jesus, uh, who God and Jesus are. And so we have to talk about God and Jesus and we do that and it can stay, you know, in, in the public sphere. But someone can know the truth about what God says about the Bible and Jesus and, and still have no clue about how that impacts them personally. You can even talk about sin in a way that doesn't get personal. You can just say, look at the bad stuff in the world, but you have to also bear witness to the internal truth of sin and what Jesus' life, death, and resurrection demands from us personally by way of response. And, and so when you decide to step across that line, that's when you're stepping into a really delicate situation because it's one thing to disagree with someone's beliefs. It's a whole other thing to call out their personal behaviors. 
In verse 22, Jesus says, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. Now, in the, those verses, Jesus is not saying that they would have gone to heaven without sin if he'd never come and spoken to them. We know that's not the case. Uh, what he is saying is that by coming to them, speaking the truth and doing works that validated his truth, it took their guilt to a whole new level because now they've directly rejected the very one that God sent to save them. If before they could have thought they weren't guilty, now there's no doubt about it because Jesus came and bore witness both to the external truth of God and to the internal truth of their sins. And you see, if you read the gospels, that's what you see Jesus doing all the time. Um, and what was the result of that? Well, verse 25, it says they hated him without a cause. I mean, Jesus did nothing to deserve their hatred. All he did was tell the truth. <laughs> but some people responded, yes, by repenting and believing. Some people took that and responded the right way. Uh, but other people, however, responded with hatred. They schemed and plotted to kill him. And on different occasions, they picked up stones and tried to kill him by stoning him to death. And, and then they shouted, crucify him. You know, they're in the same way, when you bear witness to the full truth of the gospel, you can't control how people respond. Their, their response is between them and God. Your responsibility is just to be a faithful witness to the full truth of the gospel. You know, the truth is, though, we, we can control how people respond when we only bear witness to part of the gospel. If we want a favorable response, do you want to keep things cordial and polite? Then we can, we can do that by, we can guarantee that by leaving out the personal stuff, we can just talk about the love of God and the kindness of Jesus and all that's true and no one will oppose that, but we leave out the hard stuff. On the other hand, if we like arguing and we, we think the goal is just to win an argument and we like being offensive, then we'll be hateful with people. We'll be, we'll be like those so-called street preachers uh, who hold up signs and yell angrily at people and then pat themselves on the back because they think they're doing God a favor. You know, and when you do that kind of thing or you argue with people, we may say some truthful things, but we'll do, the, do it with the intent of, of hurting people, honestly, to, to make ourselves feel better about being right. And by so doing that, our pride and our lack of compassion become a stumbling block between those people and the gospel. And in the Bible, in the Bible, God has some harsh things to say about people who make themselves stumbling blocks. So both of those, withholding personal truth or, or wailing on people hatefully, they're both, they're both easier. There are easier ways out than actually bearing witness to the full gospel with both grace and truth, with, with love and with boldness. Because that's exactly what Jesus did. And John chapter 1 says that when he came, we beheld his glory. We saw him and he was glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. He was full of compassion and love and yet he never once compromised or withheld even an ounce of the truth, no matter how hard it was for people to hear. And so when, when we're faced with opposition, 
How can we overcome fear and hesitation to speak up and, and actually speak up and bear witness? Well, here's the good news. We can overcome opposition because we are filled by the Holy Spirit. Verse 26, Jesus says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So notice what Jesus says. says the Holy Spirit will bear witness about me. Not he might or maybe or he'll think about it, but he will. And if you are abiding in Jesus, if you are staying connected to the Holy Spirit, you also will bear witness to Jesus. And you will do it with grace and truth. Why? Because it's not you who are full of grace and truth, but it's because Jesus is full of grace and truth. And we, when we try to walk the tightrope between grace and, and truth, and we try to do that in our own strength, it, it tears us apart and we're going to fall into one ditch or the other. I, mean, I can be gracious to someone or I can be honest with them, but to be both, that's really outside my ability. But John chapter one, I mean, it said that Jesus is full of grace and truth. And when you're abiding in Jesus, full of his presence, that's what he gives you. The ability, the willingness, and the power to risk a negative response and, and the boldness to speak up full of love and to share the full truth of the gospel with your neighbors. And you have to share the full truth because Romans 1.16 says that the gospel, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And so if you withhold the full gospel, you're compromising the power of God to save people's lives. But when you do share the full gospel, you're putting the burden of response into their court and into God's hands. And who knows, maybe, just maybe, they'll respond and God will bring that person from death to life right before your very eyes. So if we abide in Jesus, we will bear witness for Jesus, even against the greatest opposition. So Christian, Ask yourself, has it been a long time since I've spoken up and been a witness for Jesus? Well, this morning, maybe the response for you is the problem might be, uh, might not be that you just need to learn a better evangelism tool or, you know, that kind of thing. It could be that you're not abiding in Jesus. And so are your priorities in order? Maybe for you, it's just getting this first step right to make sure that you're full of Jesus. Or maybe you're not a Christian. And as you've listened this morning, maybe you've, you've felt opposition rising up in your own heart. Well, if that's you, search your heart and ask yourself, why, why am I resisting this? Why, why do I feel that in me? It, it could be that the truth of the gospel is going against the grain of your heart. And, and if what I've said this morning is the truth, if it is true, then it is never a wise move for you to ignore the truth or to pretend that it's not true. Because Jesus is who he says he is. And he is the way, the truth, and the life. And if you turn from your sins and trust in him, he will give you new life. So won't you do that this morning? If that's you, you could pray something like this. You can say, Jesus, I've been wrestling with the truth of, of who you are and what you said and what you've done, and, and I'm tired of fighting it. 
I believe that you are the son of God and I believe that you died for my sins and I believe that you rose from the dead and I'm putting all my faith and trust in you this morning. And if that's you, if you pray that prayer and if you do business with Jesus, please, please let us know. Let us know. We want Email us, connect at greenstreet.org and we'll help you follow along. Even if you've never been around church, we want to, to welcome you in and, and show you how to follow Jesus. Or even if you just have questions, We'd love to talk with you, pray with you, or even just maybe even hear how you disagree with what was said this morning. We'd love just to have a conversation. So before we close, let me, let me pray for you. And let me pray for you, uh, Christian brothers and sisters as well. Father, I, I pray this morning, God, I pray uh, if there are unbelievers, people who, have not, who, are, who are not Christians, that they would respond this morning. You would help them to believe the truth of the gospel today. God, and I pray for believers, my brothers and sisters, to, to be bold witnesses for the gospel, no matter the opposition, Jesus. We ask these things in your name. Amen.